We all know kids love their snacks, but finding healthy snacks with real food ingredients that won't break the bank isn't always easy. That's why I love Thrive Market. Thrive Market is an online membership-based market that makes healthy living easy and affordable. Everything is organic and non-GMO, and members save an average of $32 on every order. My kids love the Lara bars, seaweed snacks, and the skinny dip dark chocolate almonds. But Thrive Market is so much more than snacks. They also have organic and essential groceries, safe supplements, non-toxic home products, and clean beauty products, plus ethical meat, sustainable seafood, clean wine, and more. If you join today, you can get 25% off your first order and a free gift. All you have to do is go to thrivemarket.com slash food issues, where you can sign up and see my favorite items. And for every paid membership, they give a free membership to a family in need. So sign up today at thrivemarket.com slash food issues. I'm always trying to get more fruits and vegetables and real foods in my kids' diets, but between school, work, sports, and everything else we have going on, I don't have a lot of time. I need simple, easy kitchen appliances that can help me save time. And the one that I can't do without is the Vitamix. When I received it as a Christmas present a few years ago, I admit I was skeptical because I already had a blender. But the first time I used it, I was hooked. Unlike other blenders, the Vitamix blends everything up into a super smooth consistency, much like a juicer would, except you get all the nutritious fiber that regular juicers leave behind. And what I love most about the Vitamix is that it isn't just for smoothies. Every Vitamix has an entire range of textures to choose from, so you can use it to make dips and spreads, nut and seed butters, hummus and guacamole, muffins, pizza dough, plant-based milk, and frozen treats. Vitamix has been around for 70 years, and all of their blenders are powerful, durable, and built to last, and they come with a full warranty. To get free shipping off any Vitamix purchase over $50, just go to my website, julierevelant.com slash shop and click on Vitamix. This is Food Issues. In every episode, we bring you experts to tackle the real challenges around feeding kids and offer practical insights to help organizations, communities, and parents create change. I'm your host, Julie Revelon. 15 months into the COVID-19 pandemic, and experts are sounding the alarm on kids' weight gain and increasing childhood obesity rates. I would say my biggest concern is that we went into this epidemic without getting much of it right. And I figure I can say that if I can say that, anybody can. That's Dr. Carla Lester, a pediatrician, certified life and weight coach, diplomat of the American Board of Obesity Medicine and founder of IME Community, the first web-based life and weight coaching platform for teens. We'll talk about the increasing rates of childhood obesity and other chronic conditions, what to expect this summer and what needs to happen on all levels to solve these issues. And as parents, we'll talk about why we shouldn't focus on our kids' weight and what to do instead. There's a ton of evidence-based information and advice in this episode, and I know you'll walk away feeling more confident and hopeful. Dr. Lester, thank you so much and welcome to the Food Issues Podcast. 
Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited too. So why don't we dive right in? Can you talk about your background and how you became involved in addressing childhood obesity? Yes, happy to. So I'm a community pediatrician, so a general pediatrician, and I finished my residency in 1999. So I've been at it for a while. And I started noticing an uptick in um, the obesity epidemic in my patients uh, when I first started practice. Of course, um, it had been happening um, before that while I was in residency, but started diagnosing some of even my younger patients with some of the diseases associated with weight gain, like prediabetes or fatty liver disease or in hypertension, obstructive sleep apnea. And so I thought, well, what can we do here um, in the clinic to help children and families? And I initially started in 2004, what was called the Healthy Living Clinic. So brought in a fitness trainer and a dietitian and a psychologist, and we created a clinic for children and their families where they would come in the evenings. And it was great. We could recruit, you know, a few families, but then it became clear that everything we were counseling on within the um, clinic setting, you know, it was kind of undone when they went out into the community, right? I mean, they don't live in the... Uh, doctor's office. So whether they're in their schools or their homes, their neighborhoods or churches, um, looking at the unhealthy environments where the unhealthy choice was the easy choice. At that time, I started looking around at what other maybe communities were doing and how to address it on a community level. So at that time, also the expert committee recommendations um, to uh, assess, prevent, and treat childhood obesity came out and the American Academy of Pediatrics was one of 14 organizations that was a part of that, creating those um, expert committee recommendations in 2007. So I started really looking at those and I thought, well, I can do some of these. I'm already doing them and I've created this clinic in the clinic setting, but they were a lot, there was a lot more than that. It required a um, staged approach to treatment. So four stages of treatment from, you know, what you would do one-on-one in the clinic with the family and then on up to a multidisciplinary clinic for stage three and then on up to like a tertiary care referral um, for children and teens with severe obesity. And then also a lot of really heavy policy work around like safe routes to school, healthy food access. Um, And I thought, wow, you know, I need to be in the community doing this. And so I started learning from other communities like in Chicago and then also in Omaha. They had a a model called Activate Omaha Kids at that time, having a lot of discussions and decided um, it just was like a calling or purpose in my life that I would um, leave my practice. It was really hard for me, but I left my practice in May of 2008 to launch my nonprofit, which was called Teach a Kid to Fish. And my vision was creating community solutions for children's health. My vision came to me when I was at a conference in Omaha on childhood obesity. I was learning about efforts and Dr. Bill Dietz, who's MD, PhD, and was at the CDC and is now at George Washington University. He was one of the speakers, and he said um, when he's asked what caused the childhood obesity epidemic, he says everything, and when he's asked what will solve the childhood obesity epidemic, he says it will take a social revolution, each community creating its own solution, 
And for me right then was like one of those moments in my life and my career where I had a vision come to me and my vision for my nonprofit, Teach a Kid to Fish, which was all about empowering the youth voice, not just one doctor doing doing the work or speaking out. It would require a whole um, population of, of young people who were empowered to change the world. But my vision after his talk was creating community solutions for children's health. So that's a long answer, but that's my love, my work in the community with Teach a Kid to Fish. And I started that from scratch. And I remember my husband saying, who's going to pay for this? And I'm like, we are. And so <laughs> it was, you know, really um, within one fell swoop, I went from being, you know, an owner of with a full practice of a large pediatric practice and that I had built up over time to starting from scratch with many roles that I really had no idea like how to do. And I just, Google was my friend and cold calls. And I just started meeting and learning to partner, which means you're just a really good listener and you develop trust and, um, filling gaps and wrote tons of grants, created tons of partnerships, worked in healthcare, early childhood, school systems, and community, and local, state, national levels. And then I know this is a long answer, but um, I really intended not to start a clinic um, when I started Teach a Kid to Fish, but it just became so clear that we needed one in our community. And especially I had so many school nurses calling me and saying, you know, we really need a place to refer this kid who weighs 150 pounds is in first grade and is literally going up two steps and turning blue. I mean, we're so worried for him. And there were just so many cases like that because the incidence of severe obesity in children just went, has gone up over time. When I started teaching kid to fish, it was 4% of us adolescents were severely obese. And then when I started the clinic, which I'm going to talk about soon, it it was 6%. And then now it's 9% um, based on the latest data that I've seen. So, I mean, that those kids need a lot more than the bullet point recommendations they can get in a clinic. And so I, um, and a once a year doctor's visit, of course. And, and so I set out to, to launch along with the other efforts and partners of teach a kid to fish, um, pulled together partners funding, wrote a lot of grants and developed a clinic, uh, stage three to four multidisciplinary, um, clinic and partnered, um, with the children's hospital at the time, but pulled together all the funding and a business plan. These are clinics that, you know, typically cost um, organizations money. So there weren't a lot of takers on it, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, but I tried and I got, I was really proud of it. So we launched that um, clinic and with amazing partnerships with the university for behavioral supports and to look at our outcomes and the YMCA for the fitness program. program and um, launched that in 2015. And I was a pediatrician for that. And then um, started seeing 
just listening again and saw so much of, you know, ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, social determinants of health of being the really true barriers to healthy life. And for my patients in the clinic, and at that time, Dr. Nadine Burke Harris was coming forward with her amazing work around um, pediatric ACEs and chronic toxic stress. And so, um, and then the Affordable Care Act came out. So there were population health efforts um, that were looking at uh, prevention efforts and value-based care. And so the stars were aligning and I was at an AAP um, national conference and exhibit in DC. And I went to the um, rally, speak out for kids rally at the U.S. Capitol. And Dr. Nadine Burke Harris had spoken about um, pediatric ACEs and chronic toxic stress. And I'm like, this is what we need to really be addressing along with obesity treatment and prevention. And I went to the rally at the Capitol and someone was holding up a sign that said, hashtag every child needs safe environment, sound nutrition, healthy environments. And I remember just, again, I just felt tapped on my shoulder. Here you go, Carla. And I got in the cab and I came back and I had been having meetings um, with the health system about um, taking on my nonprofit and creating a population health center and moving all the programs and assets of my nonprofit to launch uh, a center that would have broader impact and address pediatric cases and chronic toxic stress and address and create a continuum of care for childhood obesity. And um, I said, here's the vision of the center. I remember that meeting and that was a cool meeting and everybody was excited about it. So, so I led that, started that um, dissolved teach a kid to fish as a nonprofit um, and then did the work on, um, early childhood and expanding and moving things to a systems level. At the same time, I had developed my own weight problem and I would always, yeah, I'd always been an extremely thin person my whole life. Um, just never thought I'd have to even think about it. And, um, but I live in the same food system as everyone. And I did a podcast, um, on this, um, my own podcast, IME community podcast and talked about like, this is a shame buster for everybody. If a doctor who's committed their whole career to addressing childhood obesity can become obese and was always thin, then please get rid of all the shame. Um, but anyway, um, I, I was never interested in anything like a diet or restricting myself. And I knew that like locale and diet and calorie restriction and low fat. You know, obviously we look at the data of our populations as a whole and hear the stories um, that, you know, those can cause harm and aren't helpful. And so I wasn't going to do that. And I started um, the physician moms group Facebook page. I was a part of that. And I heard about Dr. Katrina Ubel and I started to learn about her weight loss for doctors only program that included life coaching. And I started listening to her podcast and then I decided to sign up for it in September, 2017. And, um, she had us read the obesity code by Dr. Jason Fong, which talks about obesity's hormonal, not caloric. And, uh, so much of it's related to our food system and the added sugars. 
and how we're conditioned to it. And especially for kids, how, you know, it's marketed to them and the food addiction business model. And, and then, but the most powerful and transformational part of the journey was the life coaching and learning how to unlock the power of my mind to, to have an awareness, first of all, that my current thinking was creating my current reality and results, but that I could shift to create any belief, to create any result that I want. And, but that would take learning the tools of life coaching. So I participated in that with about 50 to 60 other doctors, women physicians from across the country. And we're still friends. I was on a Zoom meeting with them. We're really close, um, still working together on our own health. And it changed my life. And it took me 11 months to lose the weight. And the program was six months. Um, But I learned to cultivate a goal that I set for myself. And I learned that we've gotten a lot of this wrong. And I learned what works. And um, to be honest, the more I the healthier I got and the more I tried to, um, speak up for, you know, what would be best and create more collaborations and partnerships. I think, you know, health systems are focused on profit margins and, um, and I got more peripheralized from, from that work within the health system, unfortunately. And I decided again, um, it's a little bit of a long story, but I decided again, I felt a calling that I needed to get back to my original vision of creating community solutions for children's health and empowering the youth voice and just get something helpful to kids. Cause I'm like, I didn't do this work for all these years and invest so much of my time and my family and made so many sacrifices and been a part of this work to not really move the needle and to not do something that's really helpful for kids and families and communities. And so I decided to leave my high level job and I resigned and I decided to become a professionally certified life coach through the life coach school. And I studied and took my obesity medicine boards, American board of obesity medicine. And I decided to, my husband and I decided to invest um, a lot of our resources. We didn't know we'd be starting from scratch again, but I turned Teach a Kid Deficient to an LLC and I created IME Community for Teens. Teens are the ones who are suffering the most. There's really nothing out there that's helpful. And um, we can look at the you know larger population data, but I know in clinic, I mean, I was told many times that um, this clinic is here to, you know, move teens to the bariatric surgery pathway, which I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I had patients who had bariatric surgery and it was very helpful for them and their health and they had improved health outcomes. But when we don't have a helpful medical intervention that's evidence-based or you're not even offering the evidence base for your patients moving up until that point, or you're not measuring your outcomes of your program to even be able to change up and be innovative and flexible. Um, you know, I don't think that's okay. And so, um, I'm excited to, to launch, have launched IME community, um, which is the first web-based, um, life and weight coaching platform for teens. Great. I love your story. I feel like you. you see, you know, it. you kind of see pediatricians who are in practice or there's pediatricians who are maybe in practice and they want to be influencers, right? But it sounds like 
you really truly have um, the passion for for helping children and you've made so many pivots and that's really admirable for sure. Thank you. Well, I think the uh, one thing I've learned and I've talked with some of my other like kind of visionary fellow pediatricians about this, we talk about this a lot, is like the visionary champion model is a great one. I mean, you, we need visionary champions on in every, you're a visionary champion, but you know, like it can be a pretty isolating thing. And when the, the burden of sustainability, especially um, within communities, um, which I noticed with my nonprofit, when the burden of sustainability of efforts is placed on one individual visionary champion's shoulders, I mean, that's just not going to be feasible. Right. Um, so we have to have a collaborative approach to sustainability of efforts. And all of us have to be, I mean, this is an epidemic that we've been going out for a long time and we need to, we need to do better and we need everyone to be a visionary champion um, on this topic. Yeah, absolutely. So let's move on to talking about COVID-19. Um, we are about 15 months, months in at this point, and we definitely have a better perspective about how the pandemic has affected our kids and, and, and our parents and all of us, really. Um, but there's been some research and pediatricians have come out to voice concerns about the childhood obesity rates and what they're dubbing the other COVID-19. So can you talk about some recent research that's come out um, about what we now know about the effects of COVID-19 on childhood obesity rates and weight gain? And and tell me about, you know, what are your concerns that you see? Well, I think the main thing that COVID-19 uh, has highlighted is it's it's taken what was already an epidemic that is uh, that has already affected generations of children and now adults and has burdened them with chronic disease and poor health and outcomes. And it's now layered or highlighted and deepened that epidemic and the most problematic parts of the epidemic. And all children are affected by COVID-19 and the, you know, poor nutrition and physical inactivity and the mental and emotional effects of it. But then it's made worse, the disparities, as we know, um, obviously children who, are overweight or obese are like adults are more highly affected with the uh, by the acute illness of COVID and its effects, and then it's made the actual disparities in the obesity epidemic. I mean, the same populations that have been affected by the obesity epidemic have had you know just even worsening, deepening disparities. Um, for someone like me, has been working on the issue, like I said, for. Um, two decades and kind of every possible angle, to be honest, like I'm not surprised at all. Uh, that may seem sad, you know, to say, but I just, I think one of the things that I noticed right away is that we just don't have enough stopgap measures for children in our society and our culture um, to say like, I, it was so shocking when I started this work that, you know, these major experts who nobody was really listening to, who were just waving these flags and waving their arms and saying, we need to pay attention and coming out with all these alarming statistics. And it just, you know, it wasn't mobilizing um, change or resources enough. And so unfortunately, I'm not that surprised. I do like the opinion piece in the New York Times by Dr. Perry Kloss and, and Dr. Hassink and Dr. Perrin uh, were quoted in there and it, it's titled, There's No Easy Fix for Children's Weight Gain. And 
the gist of the article is what I believe and that's we need to give ourselves grace. And it's just been such an exceedingly difficult time for all of us. And especially parents, children and teens who've struggled with their weight may have become worse during COVID. And we just have to give ourselves a really big break and lots of grace and compassion. And the harm can come from if we look for quick fixes and solutions, because that can be harmful. And, um, you know, we already have an epidemic that has affected at least a third of our children. And we know there's long standing disparities based on race, ethnicity, geography, gender, income level. And now added on to that, like you said, the things like the absence of school where there was more structure and structured meal times, and sometimes just the only opportunity for meals for many children. Um, they're seeing an uptick in maybe disordered eating behaviors um, with children. We're seeing more sedentary time and um, screen time, obviously, lack of sports and activities. And then I think for me, the biggest concern is the mental health effects of a pandemic. And um, obviously the food system we live in provides easy access to unhealthy foods. And those are often used as buffers for coping with negative emotions that this pandemic has, has kind of brought on. I would say my biggest concern is that we went into this epidemic without getting much of it right. Right. And I figure I can say that if I can say that anybody can, and I'm willing to say, you know, these things haven't worked and, and we need to kick those out the door, but we need to be more flexible, agile, and innovative and, 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 uh, adult and saying what hasn't worked and not just stuck on these solutions. And let's not double down on efforts that haven't worked. Let's be, let's learn and be open and curious and, and move forward in a different way. Definitely. I think that one of the things that we get wrong as a country is that we equate weight with health. And we often say if they're overweight, they're unhealthy, but if they're skinny, there's, there's really nothing to be concerned about. But we, we know that even, you know, stick thin kids can be malnourished, undernourished and, and have, you know, like you said, disordered eating or unhealthy eating habits. And so would you say that pediatricians are also now seeing kids who were previously healthy, but are now overweight or perhaps have lost weight and are, are, you know, their, their health status, their nutritional status has declined because of COVID? I would say that for sure. And um, I agree with you, like the the simplistic mindset we have about weight, um, like it's just a simple formula. Like if you're overweight and based on your external appearance, then that means you're unhealthy. It's just, you know, weight and BMI are one single measure at one point in time. And you have to take a holistic view of health and pediatricians look at all measures of health. And, and so it's helpful to kind of step back from that. And in our society, and I was talking about TikTok earlier, um, it's really unbelievable the the shaming that happens and i call it um, health cyberbullying that happens to the body positive influencers on tiktok uh, and they people just assume that they know everything about somebody's health by just by looking at their external appearance and it's just 
just ignorant. I mean, these are obviously just cyber bullies, but it's it's so pervasive, the weight stigma and bias in our society and within healthcare. But I think it has, I mean, we're going to find out so much more about the effects of COVID-19 and all the areas of children's health that it has affected and seeing so much around the teens that I'm coaching and what their parents are saying around social anxieties that are coming up, that children who and teens who never had any problem with, you know, getting to school or getting to activities or doing things with friends um, are really struggling with social anxieties and phobias. And uh, children certainly with weight issues have always struggled with um, social phobias, which makes sense because our society is a stigma obstacle course for them. Um, But I think we're going to have to um, give ourselves grace and do a lot of learning and just really help support families, children, families, and teens too, and communities to kind of get back on track. Yeah, yeah. And so the Hispanic, Latino, and Black populations in underserved communities have been affected even more uh, by childhood obesity during COVID. And so why is this and what needs to happen to help these populations? Well, those are longstanding um, disparities and data shows that. And a lot of it is related to um, poverty it's related to, I mean, there are some um, genetic issues um, for sure, but a lot of it is really related to um, income, the geography, I mean, where they live, do they have access to healthy foods? Do they have a safe built environment where they can play and get physical activity? And, and so those disparities, again, those have worsened, like you said. And one of the ways that we have to address this is, like I said, let's not double down on what we have or haven't been doing because we haven't been doing enough to address those disparities. And I believe, you know, community solutions for children's health is really the way to go that we have to have a lot happening on the state and national levels as well, especially policy efforts. But One of the things um, that we can do is create a vision, create collaborations and partnerships, recognize there's no quick fixes or no singular solutions or one single answer. Like we need all the things and um, efforts must be on all levels from the individual on up to like policy advocacy level, include prevention, assessment, treatment. Um, and that's like the socio-ecological model for change. So I think we, you know, there are a lot of things that may have been working that we need to expand. The, the problem within communities is scaling those efforts and measuring the outcomes of those efforts and resourcing those efforts. So we, we need more resources. And data is one part of it, but data itself like just doesn't move anyone to action typically. Um, One of the things that I think is super shameful and sometimes people will manipulate the data when they hear about like uh, marginalized populations, um, which really makes me sick when they do this with kids and anyone, but um, is they shift the blame um, to the individual even though it seems absurd when you look around and look at our obesogenic environments, um, shifting the blame to the individual individual seems absurd, but the weight stigma and bias and weight blame and shame are really real. Um, and even in healthcare, 
And so, you know, I'm going to ask all the doctors, like, is a call to action to make sure that we like unveil and create some awareness of our fixed and limited beliefs on weight stigma and bias, especially for marginalized populations. And let's not blame the individual and let's treat it as a chronic disease um, because it is, it is one. And um, so that's a lot, but um, creating like, you know, family-based behavioral approaches, focusing on the whole child and, and really not just the weight. Um, and then in clinics, just really listening, creating relationships, building trust and being super compassionate. So during COVID, I think we all know that there were a lot of reasons for the increased rates in childhood obesity. So kids are on distance learning or hybrid, uh, food insecurity rates had increased, uh, Families are also purchasing processed foods and frequenting convenience stores. We've all had disrupted schedules. Of course, kids have had increased snacking and there were changes to the national school lunch program. What do you think out of all of these were the most significant drivers of the increased rates of childhood obesity during the pandemic? Well, I mean, the, the whole epidemic is multiple causal, but if you ask me, I'm going to tell you, and I think the same is during COVID, it's our food system. It's contributed so greatly with the added refined sugars, ultra-processed foods, the marketing of those foods, uh, along with like the food addiction business model. We're conditioned to eat those foods. They give us a dopamine zing. And so whenever we have a negative emotion or perceived negative emotion, which the pandemic has brought up so much of that, and we're not taught... Um, certainly children and a lot of our families and our society as a whole, how to process our emotions. And especially during COVID, when we have a lot of emotions coming up and a lot more stress, whether it's, you know, financial and all the things you talked about, or they may have even had, you know, they may have been sick themselves or had their family members been sick or even die from COVID. It's very scary. Um, you're going to go to food. I mean, it's just the easy it's the easy fix. And then obviously the sedentary time opportunities, I think those are the, those are the two things and they perpetuate each other. You get into kind of a vicious cycle. You gain a little weight, you're less physically active. You're, um, the less physically active you are, the more weight you're going to gain, the more, you know, you're buffering with food. And so you just create this vicious cycle. Yeah, Absolutely. And so there's been some research about the fact that with kids in school, there's a relationship between kids in school and childhood obesity. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I've done a lot of work um, with schools and collaborating with schools to address childhood obesity and creating efforts to address change. And um, it's been interesting. I think school is the structured environment and that's where, um, a lot of kids, like I said, are going to get food that maybe they don't even have access to at home. Um, so the structured mealtimes, the routine, the it used to be when I first started this work that we were, it was kind of like bashing schools for their school lunch and breakfast programs and, and the food that they served. And then also the lack of PE and recess that was taken away because of the standardized testing. So we were seeing an uptick and kind of blaming schools and thinking, let's put all efforts into um, measuring BMI and sending BMI report cards home. And, and that'll get the parents to get 
their kids to the doctor and will and all those efforts were good, you know, but I mean, not that helpful. And then there were lots of great changes and then maybe taken back with the school lunch program and breakfast program and some, depending on the principal, the district, um, there would be, you know, visionary champions on, in education who would make changes and the kids would have more PE. And so we were seeing changes and improvements. And I think a lot of efforts were focused there and it's a great place to, um, to focus efforts. But then again, when you look at the data overall and we live in these obesogenic environments, it's kind of like when you go back to, when I go back to thinking of my clinic I had, that was great in my practice in 2004 and five. But when they leave the doors, it's like when they leave the school doors and they go home and they live in their neighborhoods and they don't have access to healthy food. Um, so yeah, the structured environment is healthy and better than what many children receive at home and in their neighborhoods and is why like summertime is a tough time, um, for, uh, weight gain and poor health, even though that seems kind of counterintuitive. Right. And so as we head into summer, do you think that childhood obesity rates will increase? I've never, I haven't seen a study that shows like overall that that happens, but I can tell you in my practice and in my clinic, yes. And it was shocking. I remember the first summer, uh, you just intuitively think that kids are going to be outside and they're going to be eating better and it's, it's going to be less stress and it just wasn't the case. And across the board, it didn't matter what the um, socioeconomics were or any of the um, barriers. It was just the summertime was a time for eating and lots of screens And we just kind of like tried to get ahead of it. Like the second summer of my clinic, I remember we were like, how can we get ahead of this for this summer? So that if there are some of our patients who were making, getting some traction that they didn't lose ground over the summer. Yeah. Yeah. And so as I was preparing for this interview, I was, I found some articles and I, it, it gave me some ideas about other reasons that we are perhaps in maybe in certain families are seeing an increase in weight gain and insidious reasons like dad's cooking more. That's something I didn't even think about or grandma giving kids treats because grandparents are taking care of kids more now, maybe. Um, or, you know, I know I see this in my own family when my kids were learning from home, they were making their own meals. They were making lunch because I was working and and they went into their refrigerator and put together a meal and I hoped it was healthy. Um, <laughs> um, but I mean, are those factors too that are contributing to weight gain? I think so too. Like you said, like insidious is such a great word for that. Like just, and, and that means to me, like we don't have awareness of it. And I think like, it's just, it creeped into like the every moment of the every day. And it just depends on the individual and family. Um, I think if we try to put blame on one thing and not focus on like helping families with what they believe their specific challenges and obstacles are, then we miss out on the opportunities to truly be helpful. Um, 
I I think that one thing we could do is um, just creating awareness and like kind of doing an assessment of like my daughter and I, we created for IME community, we created the sugar quiz and it's just an awareness piece to, it doesn't score anything. It's literally just taking it, gives you an awareness of maybe how much sugar you're um, drinking. Like if you're drinking sugar, how many sugary drinks beverages you're drinking a day and if you have something sweet after a meal or a sugary cereal instead of you know one that doesn't have sugar in it anyway i think that having a mindfulness of some of these things that could also be adding to the problem and contributing to the problem is going to be really helpful. Like if physicians are doing any sort of assessments of like hey what do you eat in a day and don't forget grandma's treats. And, um, I would say like, I love it when my husband cooks, but, um, and grandmas are giving kids treats and they're probably going to keep doing so. But one thing I would say is like, in our culture, we've gotten away from what is truly a treat. Yeah. Yeah. So like, it's fine for grandma to give a treat, but the problem is, is that like, they're not actually treats. They're just like how we eat now. Right. And there's several a day. And, you know, it's like they're, you know, so it's really like, you know, numbing out, feeding our emotions and getting a sugary zing several times a day um, and and not using food as a reward, but instead like something special that grandma made or maybe you made together and it's a treat and you're not overeating it, but you're just super enjoying it. And it's about the experience, which is totally, that's a true treat you know? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Our kids are eating treats all day and they're also getting those, yeah. those sneaky sugars in, in other foods that they may not even realize. Yeah, exactly. Cause that's our food system. And so it's just, it's science. I mean, it's like your brain is reacting to that. It's like, a it creates over desire. So if you're having, it makes sense. Um, if you're having a negative emotion and feeling bored, uh, feeling negative. I mean, I coach so many teens. They're so unmotivated during COVID and Zoom learning has, it just, it hasn't helped with the motivation. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Let's be honest. Yeah. And so what is better than just mindlessly going to your cabinet and your brain's basically telling you to do that? I mean, it's sensing like a negative emotion coming up and then you get out of it and you get this little dopamine zing. And then we just get conditioned to it. And then you just get this like over desire for it instead of like just sitting in that, you know, it's like, it's okay if I'm bored, like it's okay, you know, right. Right. And processing it. Right. Or finding a replacement activity for your boredom. (laughs) Yeah. Or even just starting with, you know, what's a better choice. Right. Yeah. Than this, whatever I'm eating. That's great. Well, we're going to go to a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about research that suggests the diet and not exercise um, can actually have an effect on childhood obesity rates and whether that's true or not. People often ask me how I got my kids to be such healthy eaters. And the truth is that one of the best things I did was bring them in the kitchen with me to cook. And research actually shows that kids who learn how to cook, eat more fruits and vegetables, are more willing to try new foods and have healthier diets overall. 
If you don't know how to cook or don't like to cook, the Kids Cook Real Food eCourse is for you. The course, which was created by a mom of four and former teacher, is designed to build connection, confidence, and creativity in the kitchen. In this course, you'll get more than 30 basic cooking skills, 45 videos, including a ton of bonuses, principal supply and grocery shopping lists, and kid-friendly recipes like veggie bean burritos and spaghetti squash lasagna. The course is designed for all kids ages two to teen and has three different skill levels. Your kids will learn how to crack eggs, cook rice, make a salad, and safely use knives, the oven, and appliances. If your kids have food allergies or dietary restrictions, no problem because the course has a ton of substitutions. My kids and I have taken the course and it was so easy to follow along that they even made an entire recipe on their own. More than 18,000 families have taken the course and the Wall Street Journal named it the number one cooking class for kids. If you're trying to cut down on processed foods and get your kids to eat more real whole foods and become healthy eaters, then the Kids Cook Real Food eCourse is for you. You can sign up for the course by going to kidscookrealfood.com slash food issues. And because you're a listener, you'll get a free lesson. Again, go to kidscookrealfood.com slash food issues and sign up today. So in our last segment, we were talking about these sneaky ways that kids weight may be creeping up, like dad's cooking more dinners and grandma giving kids treats uh, at every turn. And so let's move on and talk about there's some research that suggests that diet and not sedentary behaviors are actually the cause of childhood obesity. And I know we read this all the time with adults, you know, six pack abs started in the kitchen and diet is definitely more important than exercise. So what do you think about this? Is this true in in the pediatric population? Well, there's multiple contributors, but I agree. I mean, it's going to be the same where you can't um, exercise your way out of a bad diet. And uh, exercise has so many amazing and fitness efforts. And I I always try to encourage all movement counts fitness um, so that you are an exerciser and you count all your movements. Um, It has so many amazing health benefits that can be proven. And it's definitely important for weight maintenance. But as far as weight loss, um, it's it typically isn't going to help, especially if you're eating a poor diet. And um, I agree with that. And I agreed. I like the study that um, you sent me. We were talking about how that highlights it, looking at um, how food is the biggest contributor. And if you look at our food system again and the food addiction business model and marketing tactics, which have been exceedingly successful in our country, and they get not only getting kids to desire and eat the food and become conditioned to eating sugary foods, but also bug the crap out of us parents to buy it. (laughs) That's been a really successful marketing um, tactic. And we as parents are seen as like heroes when we buy it and feel a little positive zing ourselves when our kids are happy and don't want to be like the Debbie Downer parent who says no all the time. And, um, 
So there's kind of a, the vicious cycle, though, I would say, like I was talking about before with sedentary behaviors and buffering with food and more screen time. And so it goes. And so it is kind of hard to like tease them out. They all kind of go together. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, Dr. Mm-hmm. Lester. I think I'm a Debbie Downer mom for sure. Because <laughs> I think you are. <laughs> you got a whole podcast on this. <laughs> My kids don't like me most of the time, but it is in moderation, right? Truly. I mean, they can have their treats, but it's not all day long. It's not even necessarily every day. Um, they, yeah, they call me out on it. They tell me that their friends tell them what a bad mom I am and um, how restrictive I am, but it, it's actually not true. I mean, we no, yeah. find ways you, you can also so, you know, upgrade your, your treats, make homemade treats for your kids and they can still feel like they're getting that treat. They're getting a little bit of sugar, but it's not going overboard all day. Exactly. And I'm, you're tough. You can take it. You can take their <laughs> friend's criticism. <laughs> Sounds like you're an awesome mom. And so, I mean, it's like, it really is though, if you have a parent who wants to transition from, you know, I mean, there's so much stress and work and all the things happening with COVID, um, they may not have had the energy to make the changes. Um, so I think it's like, how can we empower parents to stick to their, um, you know, to stick to it and be consistent and to show up in that way and not feel like they have to be, feel shameful because it's okay. I mean, have compassion for yourself. Um, and, and feel hopeful that you can make some positive changes for your family. And yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think it starts with, you know, with any change in life, I think it starts with your why, you know, why are you doing Uh it? You know, Yeah. yeah. If you want to make those positive changes and help your, and help your family, um, then, then they'll feel more motivated perhaps to, to, to make those changes. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the effects of childhood obesity, because I think this is something maybe we don't always talk about, we hear a lot about just the general health effects, but what are the short-term effects of weight gain on kids? Well, certainly depends on the individual and, of course, the amount of weight gain as well. There's um, definitely physical, emotional health consequences that can be seen pretty quickly um, and depends. But um, I don't know if it's like the chicken or the egg, but you kind of look at weight as the symptom and not the cause. And um, it's important to get to the root cause of the weight gain and do a comprehensive assessment, um, review systems, history, and family history to get to the root cause. Um, One of the things is, you know, the mental and emotional health. Um, Certainly, there have been a lot of studies on quality of life going down. I think you're going to see more of the social phobias and anxieties, so the mental and emotional health. And uh, they live in our very stigmatized society. So they're going to experience more self-judging and be more of a target everywhere they go for stigma and bias. And I think that um, as far as like things like um, lack of motivation, um, short attention span, um, things like that, that really is going to just depend on the individual. Okay. And long-term effects, you know, we we know that childhood obesity often uh, is a comorbidity of other chronic diseases, and we see it show up with high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, and now even non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in kids. 
Yep. Um, do you expect that we'll see these chronic diseases rise over the next decade or so? And they're terrible now. They're, I mean, it's for me, like as someone who's taken care of so many children and teens and even young children, really, really young children with fatty liver disease, it's, it's, it's shocking. Uh, we, we just don't have enough data or awareness um, that these, these are the real epidemics. I mean, it's not about the external weight as we all, as we know, it's about the health effects, these comorbidities that are related to it. And I took care of so many children and teens with, um, all of the comorbidities. I mean, they're burdened with diseases that, that you would see in, you know, really sick old much older adults, you know, just generations ago. And it's so sad um, to watch. And um, one of the things is, I mean, we talk about the diabetes epidemic. So obviously seeing a lot of um, diabetes and prediabetes. And a lot of that is related to the food system that we have with so many refined carbs and ultra processed foods. But the epidemic of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, especially in children, is one I think that gets not anywhere near the attention that it needs to get. And I was seeing kids, I mean, even as toddlers that had um, fatty liver disease. And you cannot, um, it has, I mean, it's related to weight gain. It's related to insulin resistance. And you maybe have like a genetic component to that added with the um, carbohydrate-rich foods that we have. And those are the two things that um, predispose somebody to develop fatty liver disease. And um, But you can't predict based on looking at someone what their liver function tests are going to be like, or if they have fatty liver disease. And the shocking thing about that, the the reason to address it and to address it by reducing the refined carbohydrates in our diet and really focus on that is because if a child develops or a teen develops fatty liver disease and it's a spectrum, so once they develop inflammation, then it can progress to, um, to fibrosis or end-stage liver disease, the most common reason for uh, liver transplants in the United States now, it passed up alcoholism. Um, If you develop it even as a teen, you're going to have like a 75% increased risk of chronic liver disease entering into adulthood. So, I mean, we're not doing enough to address the epidemic of fatty liver disease. And it's, I am worried that it's gotten worse during COVID. Yeah, we definitely don't hear a lot about that. Why do you think that is? As parents, we don't. There's no symptoms. Mm -hmm. I mean, we just Mm -hmm. are, um, I mean, it's not going to show up as jaundice. There's no pain. Um, So making sure that our, um, you know, we're screening for it within the primary care clinics. And um, I mean, there's guidelines um, based on the expert committee recommendations that are super helpful. And that's all laid out. Um, But I think one of the reasons why we haven't been that helpful is because we're still stuck a little bit in kind of not giving the most helpful advice, like the low-cal, low-fat 
um, restricting calories. Um, not that all, all hospitals and clinics are doing this. There are some that are focused on um, the glycemic index and, and definitely cutting back on sugary drinks. And there's a lot of amazing doctors and clinics out there. I'm not saying that. But um, still having some of the efforts out there that aren't that helpful and giving bullet point recommendations to families when you need, they need so much more support and help. And um, if you look at marginalized populations where the disparities are and the health inequities and have, having higher rates of fatty liver disease and then less access to healthy foods, that's, that's going to be an issue. <laughs> So for parents whose kids have gained weight during the pandemic, whether mm -hmm. it's five pounds, 20 pounds, whatever it is, should they be concerned? I always think it's good, you know, to be concerned about your child's health overall and to have a holistic view of their health. And I would not, when parents focus on the weight, it, it isn't helpful um, if they're going in for a physical, I think it's great and get them in for a well child checks. I know that, um, some of those dropped off and I'm going to tell you, you know, get to your pediatrician, get to your family doctor and get that assessed. And I coach, um, doctors to, um, I created the activist MD network and on my Kevin MD podcast and in my article, let's meet in the middle when it comes to weight stigma and children and teens, I coach doctors to first ask permission. And that's, that's what we should do. Can we, is it okay if we talk about your weight and your BMI today, ask the child, the teen and the parent separately. And then if they say no, say, I get it. And then you pivot to the assessment part of it. So then you can talk about, well, I'd like to, you know, I'm, you know, concerned about your risk for you know, prediabetes. And I'd like to measure this, you know, based on these concerns or, you know, have your talking points in place. Um, alarm. So being concerned maybe is different than alarm. Uh, there have been studies. If we draw a lot of alarm and try to be shocking and shaming with parents, it really isn't helpful. And my concern is like that they will go home and think that they need to um, fix or solve it and look for a quick fix or solution and kind of put it on the kid. Yeah. And so are there way, are there things that parents may typically say to their kids to thinking they're going to try to motivate them to get healthier when, you know, in fact, they're, they're kind of, they're shaming them. Yes. And I coach, I've coached parents on this on my last YouTube video and podcast. I was like, parents know best. Um, maybe not. <laughs> and, uh, it's just what I've seen like with teens and what they talked to me about is that, you know, all grace and compassion for us as parents, we have good intentions and we grew up in this diet culture, you know, right. and we're living in the food system and we're going through COVID too. So let's give ourselves a break. And, um, but what happens is, um, we, if, when you're a parent who's buying into the, you know, fixed and limited lie of our diet culture that your kid won't be as successful or they're going to have, these problems are not going to have self-esteem. They're not going to have a great life. They're not going to be happy, whatever it is you're buying into. If they have a weight problem, I mean, let that go because it's just not helpful. And I would say 
I try to coach parents to recognize when they have the urge and they're triggered to get in their kid's lane about food. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, and the, some of the triggers are around like family meal time. And if you're like, oh, kind of on your kid, if they're getting seconds. And I mean, the fact of the matter is like, if you're like, are you sure you want to eat that? You've already had enough, you know, like little slap on the wrist. You're that's a shame trigger and you're not really helping. And you're probably just judging yourself as a parent. (laughs) Mm, That's a good point. Yeah. You're probably needing to do a U-turn and you're, and then you're like trying to like, then you end up like kind of judging your kid. And the problem is like, since I coach teens, it's like, it's, you move from having a relationship with your kids. It's transactional where you're providing for their every need and, you know, making sure they're fed and, and to relational. And so it just, it's going to create a shame trigger. Shame doesn't help mobilize anybody to create healthy change and it'll keep them stuck and it'll just create more of a divide between you and your teen or child. So just recognize when you feel triggered to do that and just create a pause and just be compassionate with yourself. Like it's coming from a good place. It's okay. You know, you just don't want your kid to have to deal with a weight problem, which I totally get, you know, but the main thing I tell parents to role model because is self-compassion because in our society we've been, and I used to say like, you know, be a great role model, like a little bullet point, like be, and it's important, you know, be a great role model for healthy eating and physical activity. But we, you know, parents, we all come in different shapes and sizes and we all have different lives and stressors and backgrounds. And so, um, the most important thing is that we can role model is self-compassion because if we are, um, kind and loving to ourselves and show that it's okay that we fail because we're humans and we're going to make mistakes and we're not going to be perfect, then we'll, that will mobilize our kids to have self-compassion. And when you have, like I always say, self-love is your superpower because if you have your own back and you love yourself and you're not going to be restrictive and judging and harsh on yourself, when you make a mistake, because you're going to, and you're going to fail, you can do anything, you know? So that's going to be mobilizing for your kid to try something new because they're not afraid of it. That's great advice. So in December, the American Academy of Pediatrics released two clinical guidance documents. Can we talk about what they state and what they mean for parents? Yeah. And I had looked into those in my past, you know, career or, you know, before IME community, before I became a life coach, I would have been like on the forefront of looking at all these guidelines. And I think that they are um, super helpful as a framework um, to to make sure that we're not missing anything is the most important thing. And some of the things that, you know, like we were, we've been talking about in this discussion that have worsened is like, make sure that you're screening for food insecurity, which a lot of practices were maybe doing that already. You're connecting families to community resources, which is so important. And uh, there may be new resources during COVID. I know our community has a lot more, I mean, they've adapted. The food bank has adapted. The schools have adapted. Um, 
the health department has adapted um, to help support uh, families. So connecting to resources, also screening for eating disorders, since there's been an uptick, it sounds like in um, potentially disordered eating behaviors. And so that's the most important thing is that we are, um, don't be surprised for parents when they go to the doctor's office that your doctor may be doing, I mean, I know doctors do so many screening, <laughs> have so many screening tools, but they may be asking that of you and don't be offended because they ask that of everyone. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. But on the flip side, you know, I had read that pediatricians get about 24 hours total of education in nutrition and mm-hmm. the average child well visit is only 11 to 20 minutes. And they, like you said, they have to go through all the screening for insurance and for the practice themselves. And so although their guidance is well-intentioned, is it really realistic? Can a lot be accomplished in that small window? Yeah, I love this question. (laughs) It's so needed to get this awareness out there. So we definitely don't get enough training to address nutrition or obesity, like as a chronic disease and the way that our health systems are set up and health insurance is set up, it's really not modeled after, um, you know, chronic disease management and especially pediatricians and pediatric offices don't get reimbursed for a lot of like the care coordination or hiring a dietitian to come in and, um, obesity itself, if you bill, if you code that first, you won't get reimbursed for the visit and maybe that bill will be on the family. So there's a lot of barriers. Um, but any training I've had over the last two decades has basically been personally sought out. And I think any, there's only a handful of us across the country who have spent this much time on addressing childhood obesity, but I bet they would all have the same story is that we've had to personally seek it out. The guidelines that the AAP comes up with, the expert committee recommendations, uh, I took those and basically operationalized those, like every bullet point of those. And it was exceedingly like difficult with lots of challenges along the way. So I think they're helpful frameworks, but they're not, you can't address all of that in one visit. I used to um, think I had to, I had scarcity of time with a family. So I had 15 minutes and I just had to, it was all about my agenda of getting everything that I needed to tell them, you know, just blah, 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 blah in that visit. And, you know, it was exhausting for me. It didn't feel great. And they got nothing out of it, I'm sure. Um, But I'd say like creating realistic and agile and innovative and curious models to address obesity as a chronic disease that's like more family-based, focuses on behavioral component, more community-oriented, and and also how are we measuring um, our, how are we continuously measuring what we're doing? Is it helpful? And also, you know, we're there to address the acute issue. I mean, if they come in for a sick visit or even a well child visit, they have a lot of different issues. So you have to address like what's the top issue that the parents are um, coming with and they may not be concerned about the weight. And um, if you look at the, um, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force looks at the evidence base for clinical interventions, and they showed that it takes a minimum of 26 
to up to 75 hours of comprehensive behavioral intervention for a child or teen to show any sort of dem- demonstrated weight loss or improvements in health over a t- two to 12 month period. Well, like you said, you got an 11 to 20 minute well child check um, or visit. And so that's why like I created IME community. It decreases the stigma and teens can access it um, with their phone anywhere they want. It's private, wherever they want, whenever they want, and they can get those hours in. Um, that they're not going to be able to get within a clinic. That's great. Mm-hmm. So I, I had seen an interview that you did for Kevin MD, and you said that surveys you've conducted have found that the number one barrier that, that physicians face when it comes to combating childhood obesity is parent apathy. So can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit more about that and what it means for pediatricians and for parents? Yeah, that was a survey I did um, several years ago when I was working with my nonprofit, Teach a Kid to Fish, and I had worked with um, Nebraska DHHS to create the Foster Healthy Weight in Youth, um, Nebraska's Clinical Childhood Obesity Toolkit uh, for physicians across the state and did a lot of training and basically took the expert committee recommendations and created a tool um, and trainings for doctors. And we started with doing a survey to see what are some of the barriers and challenges that doctors face addressing childhood obesity with prevention, assessment, and treatment. And that was their number one um, barrier was parental apathy. So that comes from from them. And um, time and lack of reimbursement, lack of training, like you said, with nutrition and obesity is a chronic disease. And then also lack of community like clinics programs um, for a referral were all barriers that were cited. And so that's a lot. But when the number one barrier that they bring up is parental apathy. I actually, during that podcast and this one, I'm going to challenge that belief. And um, I think that believing that, continuing to believe that doesn't serve us as physicians or our patients or families, because our thoughts as a coach, as a life coach, is like our thoughts create our feelings, our feelings drive our actions or inactions, and our actions create our results. So if you're going into a patient room with that belief that the parents are never going to do anything, then your result is, I mean, that's not going to be a motivating thought. So that feeling is going to make, is you're probably going to feel apathetic, <laughs> unmotivated to do anything to address it for your patient. And, and you don't know that, you know, so we're, so I don't see that either. I see parents as being very caring about it. They are worried about causing harm. Some do cause harm. There's, um, you know, parents bully. Um, They have a lot of fixed and limited unhealthy beliefs about weight and their kids. And um, I think we can start to help them and, and do a better job. And they need more, parents need more than the bullet point recommendations from doctors because it's just not enough um, for them to make changes in healthy habits. Yeah, definitely. So we're going to take a break right now. When we get back, we're going to talk a little bit more about recent updates and uh, some things that the government is doing to combat childhood obesity and food insecurity. Hey friends, if you've got kids, you've got picky eaters. And as a mom of two, I totally get it. 
There are foods my kids flat out refuse to eat or foods they love one day and the next, not so much. Still, through the years, I've learned the secrets to raising healthy, adventurous eaters. And I want to share what I've learned with you in my free video course, Turn Your Picky Eaters Into Little Foodies. In this course, you'll learn some of the most effective ways to get your kids to eat their vegetables, try new foods, and how you can put an end to picky eating for good. To sign up, all you have to do is go to julierevelant.com and click on freebies. So in our last segment, we were talking about research that you've done, which shows that the number one barrier that physicians face when it comes to combating childhood obesity is parent apathy. So let's switch gears a little bit right now and talk about some recent news that's come out about the government and what they're doing to combat childhood obesity and food insecurity. Well, Again, I'm so glad that you sent me the WIC Act because I used to be involved in, you know, with my nonprofit and my former work, I was involved in the minute to minute, you know, updates. Um, and I am so excited that the WIC Act is is going um, is up so that we can expand efforts um, to get more. I mean, it's just an amazing program to provide supplemental nutrition and there's so much education that comes from it. And then there's collaboration uh, with the physicians and obviously prevention is key. So focusing on uh, the prenatal and then, you know, expanding it on up to age six and expanding access and getting it there to where um, families are is super helpful. And so I hope that everybody um, will um, call their um, representatives and um, their legislators and support and offer support for that and um, advocate for the expansion of the WIC. Uh, WIC. And I think um, one of the things that the WIC has done is when WIC was reauthorized, now it's been several years, um, but the rollout and implementation and the pre-work that was done um, was a hugely successful initiative um, by the government uh, and the WIC program. And it really made an impact when you look at the data and the food system. Um, so I think that, that looking at um, not only these um, reauthorizations or changes in um, WIC or SNAP or the school lunch program, or obviously we saw with the Affordable Care Act that there were major issues with the rollout of that um, that weren't helpful. But how these things, how these changes and implementations are rolled out um, within, you know, even down to the community level is so important to their, um, success. Um, SNAP benefits are super important. I've been on the, I grew up with food insecurity and I've been on the board. I wrapped up nine years of serving on the board of the food bank of Lincoln, which is an amazing organization. And I wrapped that up last summer and it was such an honor to serve. And one of the things that I was able to advocate for was um, increased access to healthy foods and we moved the budget. I just kept plugging along in all the programs to just push for us to purchase more uh, fresh fruits and vegetables. 
That's great. Yeah. Our, um, my daughters and I, they're, they're 10 and eight and we volunteer once a month for a local organization called Hillside Food Outreach. And they, uh, provide fresh fruits and vegetables through a grant program to, you know, they call them our clients with people who face food insecurity. Um, That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. It's really great. My kids have been doing it since I think they're four and six. So I really felt like I wanted to teach them how fortunate we are and that other people in our area are in need, despite the fact that we live in a, in a, you know, upper middle class community. Um, although when, you know, the, the problem is, is when you face one setback, you could really be faced with a lot of, of challenges um, mm-hmm. and food insecurity. And so for people who are fortunate, what are ways that we can help people who are most vulnerable and those dealing with food insecurity? Yeah, that's great. I love it that you and your uh, family are doing that. That's so awesome. Uh, donating to food banks um, and donating good food to food banks. Um, we have little pantries in our community, which are little cute little um houses that you can um, fill up food and go around. So find out where those are if you have those in your community, because especially during COVID, like you said, like families who would never have dreamed of having food insecurity, um, not having food in their house ended up being the families that needed it. And so um, they access the little pantries and some of them are filled up like three times a day. Um, I say serve on boards for sure. Um, and when you're serving on boards, just keep advocating for healthy food access. Um, you can become involved in advocacy efforts and, um, you know, reach out to lawmakers. It may be just a simple email, um, help with community gardens, uh, farmers markets, um, work with schools on their backpack programs or their summer food programs or their, we have uh, pantries like market pantries at the high schools and middle schools. And those are fun to, um, volunteer at. You may have like, we have Matt Talbot kitchen here in Lincoln, which is one of my favorite nonprofits. And they have cooking classes, um, for children and families. And so you may be able to be a part of that or donate items for those cooking classes. And I, I again, think just really being mindful uh, when you're making the donations so that you're giving food that, you know, people will really want to eat. Right, right, right. Mm -hmm. And that they need as well. Those are all great ideas. Mm -hmm. So let's shift gears once again and talk about families and what they can do to help their kids. So I was on Facebook earlier today and I'm part of, um, I'm a member of Less Mills On Demand. It's high intensity workouts. And I'm part of a community on Facebook. And there was a woman who posted a picture of herself. It was a selfie. She had a sports bra on and and shorts. And she said, um, where is my six pack? I know what to do, but I can't stop eating. (laughs) And I think that um, for many of us parents, like you said, parenting is hard. Every day is tough. um, And it's hard to just make even small habits uh, consistent in our family. So we know what we need to do, but there seems to be a disconnect or challenges uh, there are obstacles to actually follow through with new habits like cooking more, buying more fruits and vegetables, things like that. So mm-hmm. what do you think that parents need to do to to make those habits stick? 
Well, like you said earlier, you know, like start with what's your why? Because I mean, it has to be something that evokes kind of more of a, a like a positive emotions and like your dream speak or vision, you know, and ties into kind of where you want to go overall and gives you more of a sense of hope and excitement rather than um, something you feel like you have to do. Um, so, and I always say like, as a life coach, I mean, own it. Like you're the first step and I have this make it fun to get it done um, email challenge. If you sign up for imecommunity.com's email challenge, which I hope everyone do. If you um, sign up for that, my first step and make it fun to get it done because I was coaching so many teens who weren't having any fun and were not motivated, especially during COVID, but they had things they had to do. So I'm like, why not make it fun to get it done? The first thing is to own it. I mean, do it, take massive action and figure out what is kind of the pain point, um, the biggest, the biggest goal for you. Cause that's going to be the one you're most motivated to change. And so your current thinking creates your current reality. And when we're stuck, it's usually because we have a fixed or limited belief. So, and a fixed or limited belief is just like a powerful thought that we've had on a loop that we haven't challenged and that keeps coming up for us. And so it may just like be creating some awareness of our feelings or emotions, thoughts or beliefs that are creating the feeling when you think about making a change. Um, And just having that awareness, like if you think, oh, I can't do it, or we've tried this so many times and it never works. And, oh my gosh, everybody's going to give me so much flack if we try this. Like I'm a terrible, (laughs) their friends are going to say I'm a terrible mom and I'm so strict, you know, and I'm not as tough as Julie. I can't take that. But um, so they, so, you know, just an awareness is all you need to then shift to something more productive. That'll give you the result you want. So you may say like um, shifting to something that's more productive, like we're a curious family who tries new things to create a healthy life if, if it's believable. And then just like also for parents to know like self-compassion and not perfection is really what you're going for. When you're taking action, like that's super important. Like I was talking about before, it's like, yeah, this is kind of hard and try to have fun with it and um, recognize also like, especially as your kids are getting older, you're not causing and you don't control all the things and that's okay. But what you can coach yourself is like, how do I want to show up as a parent? You know? Yeah. Um, Especially when you have teens, like you don't cause and you don't control. Right. Um, and don't make it mean anything. Like if you're like, oh, well, this didn't work this week and we're trying to do more family meal times and this is just never, don't make it mean anything. Just keep going, just keep trying. And also like create your own measures of success. And, um, it may be like, well, I showed up and I, you know, did this meal planning for the week and that's a win for me. And right. Yeah. Those small little changes, right? Yeah. Count your wins and just leave all the other stuff behind. (laughs) I love that. I love that. That's great attitude to have. So for parents whose, whose kids have gained weight or not during the pandemic, uh, or just you want to make changes to your family life, what are ways that they can get their kids on a healthier track or their whole family really on a healthier track? Yeah. That's a great question. Best thing is to focus on being positive and focus on strengths and then um, family meal times, and not focus on the weight at all. And there's some um, studies, it was in a Kevin MD article, and I think I talked about it in the podcast, was on um, 
what are the risk factors and the protective factors for both eating disorders and weight gain are the same. And so the protective factors to prevent children and teens from developing eating disorders or increased weight is promoting a positive body image and family meal times. And so if, if parents can just focus kind of on that, doing the family meal time and just being positive, focusing on your teen strength, don't talk about the weight and, you know, just recognizing your role too. parents provide the food. You can role model, you're providing some structure, some routine around the food. And then of course the child or the teen is going to be the one who decides if and how much they eat. And then also like, if you are worried about your child or teen's weight, that you stay in your lane, remember? Because it's like, if, if you're triggered, just recognize when you're triggered, maybe it's a good intention, you know, hand over heart, give yourself a little hug. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't know what you got to do to not actually react to that triggering. And so you don't have to, you can create a pause and you don't have to like create that shame trigger then for your um, child or teen. Because if you're, constantly in their business, they're not going to be able to figure out how to trust themselves and figure out like there's a lot around intuitive eating now. And there's the, I created in my member community, I have 10 steps to self-trust eating. Well, if you're constantly on your kid or your teen about what they're eating, then they're not going to be able to figure it out for themselves. They're going to be questioning their hunger cues. Yeah, that's a great point. Mm-hmm. Dr. Lester, tell me where listeners can go to get more information about you and IME community. Oh, thank you for asking that. Okay, so um, imecommunity.com is my website and it's IME community. So it's when you say IME, it's like I am me. And so my whole mantra is where self-love is your superpower to achieve your weight and life goals and make your mark in the world. And I'm on YouTube at IME Community, and I have the IME Community podcast on Apple and Spotify. My website has a ton of free stuff. If you're a teen struggling with your weight or body image, age 13 to 18, sign up for my member community. It's only $24.95 a month, and I'm on there coaching twice a week, and there's awesome courses, and I coach parents once a month on there. Um, So there's a lot of amazing stuff out there. Sign up for my email challenge to learn how to make it fun to get it done, and that's where you'll find me. Great. And we'll link to all of that in the show notes. So Dr. Lester, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate all of this information and advice. Thank you for having me. I love your work. Keep going. Thank you very much. Wow. That was an amazing conversation with Dr. Carla Lester. I hope you found it as helpful as I did. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss any of the episodes. And if you're already subscribed and you enjoyed today's episode, I'd love it if you could take a second, go into Apple Podcasts and leave a review and a rating so that we can reach more people. I'm Julie Revelant, and thank you for listening to Food Issues. You can connect with me on julierevelant.com and on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.